we have Jason LaRocca with us, who is multi-talented um, musician, engineer, recording and mixing. Um, he works in film, television, video games, even regular music <laughs> that's not associated with a screen. Um, Jason, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Lily. Thank you, guys. Um, let's start by talking about your Lord of the Rings work um, in the new series, the new Amazon series. Yeah. You're involved all across the board there for music. Yeah, well, I got yeah. So I got brought on to mix the score for that show. Uh, I was mixing um, God of War with Bear McCurry right before that. So we were working on that project, which um, you know was pretty you know lengthy process and we were working together on that one and then he called me and said hey uh lord of the rings do you want to do it and i was like well of course i mean that's kind of like a dream come true and uh you know before well before we even got started there was a lot of talk about you know his approach to it how we were going to you know accomplish this on sort of a tv schedule and um you know, and Adam and I were just talking about, you know, a lot of the recording production that went into this was was pretty extensive and intense. So we had a lot of pre-production meetings about just how are we going to accomplish this? And and this was basically over nine hours of music for this series. Um, so it was, it was very, ex it was exciting. It was very daunting, of course, to, to sort of you know, the films are incredible. I'm a huge fan of the films and I think yes, sonically they're incredible. So we had a big, you know, high bar there for us as far as that goes. Um, but yeah, working with Bear is incredible. So it was, and I just kind of went in for it and in it to win it. <laughs> so tell us about, I remember what we were talking yesterday, you were saying that so much of what the composer's demos are, so to speak, that the filmmakers are used to hearing are so at, at such a high level they're so fleshed out and then they have to go and recreate that that the filmmakers have gotten used to with an orchestra and then you're the one that has to come in and mix all that stuff and make it sound like the demo sounded totally um so and i know that this was a lot of different pieces coming from a lot of different places give us all of the details on that well, yeah, I mean, there was there were definitely some elements that we kept in these mixes that were more or less quote unquote final, but a lot of it was replaced, and a lot of it, obviously, the the score is very heavily orchestral, um, and so his mockups were all you know as good as he can get them, knowing that of course we're going to be replacing the choir, we're going to be replacing strings, brass, winds, all the solo instruments, um, and so. My the demo is basically king, right? Especially when it comes to film music, is like the way the composer gets that demo to sound in terms of how it plays against the scene and what it's doing really has to be respected and 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 kept more or less intact. Even though we're going to basically go and record everything all over again, and then have only you know thirteen some odd days to completely replace 65 minutes worth of mock-up music. So basically I come in at, at the end of the process, I'm sort of like the finalizer, you know, the guy who's kind of taking it to the very last bit of the finish line and sending that off to, you know, the dubbing mixer who's going to take that with the sound effects and the dialogue and finish it. Um, so we had basically four days with the orchestra 
Um, so they would do strings for two days and then brass and winds for two days. And then while that was happening, they were also recording the choir for two or three days in Vienna with this, at the synchron stage. Um, and soloists were being recorded all at the same time as well. So we had, you know, a lot to sort of organize and put together in terms of who all is going to, you know, one central location where all of this stuff is going to get put together and then brought to me and then basically trying to make all that sound still like the demo, but better is kind of the idea, you know, where you've got, you know, a great sounding demo, but obviously with all the real orchestra and the real choir and everything, it sounds incredible. Part of it too is that the choir isn't saying words and texts in his mock-ups. They're saying, you know, whatever samples say. So in everything that in, in the show is actually specific texts that they've written in different, you know, Elven languages and stuff like that for the show. So all of that is really, you know, very specific and really dialed in with the producers of the show and the directors and, and with Bear on the text and what the choir is saying and stuff like that. So even though we're still trying to make it sound like the demo, the idea is it's a much elevated higher elevated version of of what the demo was and now it's got you know real choir and they're saying real words and there's you know real orchestra recorded at air and abbey road and it's just a, and now it's in surround and all that stuff so it's 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 like the demo only it's it's expanded out into more channels and you know a lot more layers of stuff you were saying that the time crunch on this <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was basically uh, it was like 7 months for me, it was basically like seven months, almost full-time mixing on it. We had basically, once we were sort of into the assembly line of the show, we had, leading up to the first couple episodes, we had a lot more time to talk about it and prepare and you know get ready. But once we kind of got locked into the schedule of it, we had, I had two weeks basically to mix and finalize my side of it. So while the orchestra was recording at Air and Abbey Road and Synchron, they were sending me stuff as it was done and ready, and I would just pre-mix whatever was done that day. If it was like strings on a couple of cues or choir on a couple of cues, we would pre-mix that stuff and get it in. And every day, just kind of layer on whatever was ready, so that by the end of that first week, I could actually start sending bare, you know, pretty finalized mixes of whatever we had, and then take that rest of the next week to basically circle back around on notes and do all the printing, which for 65 minutes of music took us you know, a day and a half to two days, depending on how much it was, to print it all. And so we we're kind of mixing for the soundtrack at the same time. So like we wanted it to just be done, like not sort of half-assed and okay, it's good enough for the show, but we'll come back and you know, do more on the soundtrack later. It was like, let's get this perfect now so that it's just done and it's as good as it can sound. So we wanted to have as much time as possible to do that, even though we didn't have, you know, we had literally two weeks, but it doesn't mean we can't work around the clock and get it to sound fantastic and do whatever we can. And so then after we were done turning in that episode, we only had basically a week off. And then the next week we would start pre-mixing the next episode and then turning around the next one. So we did that over and over again like that. Yeah. For, yeah, about seven months. So it's for each episode, the orchestra is going back in, recording again all that stuff is happening for each episode yeah, yeah. over and over and over That's again right. it's not like they're doing it for the whole series all at one go. right we for the first two episodes we did actually record 
the orchestra did record for the first two episodes at once, but every other episode we had to go back in, set up the stage for them to record the episode just that one time for that one episode, and then you know three weeks later come back and do the next one. So yeah, we had to have... One of the things actually in pre-production was I had said to the recording engineers, let's make sure we use exact microphones that we can take to any studio that we go to so that when it changes from air to Abbey Road or somewhere else that we're using all the same microphones and the same setup and the same layout so that nothing really sounds like it changes as much as possible so it can be as consistent of a sound. Because we were coming back to each episode three weeks apart from each other. And so it was a lot of the same players, uh, usually the same room, or if it wasn't, at least the same microphones. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, you also did the mixing for The Harder They Fall, um, which had some superstars on it. Totally. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. Well, that was produced, Jay-Z was one of the producers on that show. So uh, James Samuel, who was the director, like he, I think he wrote it, produced it. Yeah, he did everything, including performing. And, he did the score. Yeah. He's like incredible. Um, he's Seal's brother, by the way. Uh, super incredibly talented guy. And I got brought on to mix that score. Originally was just to mix the score. And there was a couple of songs that didn't have um, a mixer assigned to mixing them. And the music editor, uh, Clint Bennett, who's a great friend of mine, he's like, uh, well, I mean, there's a song that Jay-Z is going to be singing on and Kid Cudi's going to be singing on. And it's like, you know, we actually kind of need it mixed because we want to do a trailer commercial for it. So let's, you should just mix that today. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, right on. That was pretty cool. So I got to mix that song, which was actually turned out to be the opening song of the film. And then there was another song by CeeLo, which is at the end of the film that I got to mix. And, and those ended up on the soundtrack too. So that was pretty exciting to get to, you know, mix stuff outside the score and actually mix some songs too. So that was pretty cool that they let me do that. These days you're not doing a lot of regular song mixing. Not very often, <laughs> not very often, but it is definitely fun when I get to. I, I um, you know, that's kind of where I started out was, you know, I was in a punk band and did, you know, my own records and stuff like that. So it was like getting to kind of come back to for me what is my roots, you know, stuff that's got, you know, vocals in it and is like up there in front and it's the lead song. Yeah. Um and I was going to rewind to that. So you you were in a punk band first, and that's kind of where you got introduced to the whole world of mixing because you were doing some of that for your band. Yeah, I was I was just you know I had the rock star dream. <laughs> I wanted to go and become something, you know, like uh, Billy Joe Armstrong or something like that, and uh, had the crazy notion of of being in a punk band and and touring the world. But I figured maybe that won't work out maybe that won't be the path for me. And I also really like being in the studio and I, and I kind of want to try out this engineering thing. I wasn't going to engineering school, so I didn't really have, my options weren't, weren't great. And I thought, well, maybe there, you know, something will happen. And I was, you know, trying to get in with different studios and people were like, ah, it's great. You know, you didn't go to school, so we can't really accept you here. And I had a friend of mine who I was, uh, playing local shows around LA with who um, he's here actually, Adam, funny enough, who I had met um, a long time ago in, in the nineties. And 
uh, he's like, yeah, you know, uh, I'm I'm leaving this position working for a composer. Maybe you want to see if that's like something that could work out for you. And I thought, I know nothing about film music. I know nothing about you know this world at all. I'm you know I'm a rock guy. But maybe it's something that could be cool. And I started interning there, and eventually, you know, started assisting as as his as his tech assistant. So that was kind of like the weird way that I ended up sort of in the film world, which was really just that, you know, I wanted to have some job security and figure out how I can have some other job other than, you know, working at McDonald's or whatever it was. But you're still doing mixing for that composer. Yeah, absolutely. Mark's a dear friend of mine. It's Mark Isham, Mark. by the way. Mark Isham. Sorry. I don't know if we said that. This, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a dear friend of mine and uh we've done a number of projects this year together as well. But we were just talking about the, the Nick, Nick Cage, Cage movie, the the uh unbear- unbearable weight of massive talent, which is a really I think it's a funny film personally <laughs> cuz I guess I'm the demographic for that kind of film, but you know, maybe it's not everybody's thing. <laughs> Um, tell us some differences between uh, scoring for series, which sounds really hectic, and film and video games. Well, the TV scoring, mixing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, the TV thing is usually that it's the schedule crunch of having seven days to do an episode every, you know, every week you're doing whatever it is, 35 to 45 minutes of music. So, and I know Blake Neely was was here uh, speaking as well. I mean, he's doing however many shows he's doing every week. It's it's pretty intense, and it, you know that starts to become all about your preparation and what you do in advance of of getting into the mixing and the scoring is like having all of your layouts and your templates and everything, so that once you start going into production, you're just like able to. Sometimes you have to wait up until the last minute before the mixing side has sometimes has to wait up until the last minute before we can actually mix something because producers and directors haven't approved something. And, you know, we have all the time in the world to mix something, but until it's approved and is, you know, able to be mixed, we can't do anything with it. So it's the hurry up and wait factor of just being, you know, prepared and ready to do that. And that's kind of the TV thing is like every seven days we're turning that around. Whereas with a film, we might mix, you know, have four weeks to mix it and that's all great. And then, Two weeks later, they call us back and say, we've recut the ending. We need to redo this. Let's all get back in. And the film just sort of goes on forever, it seems, a lot of the time. Um, And, you know, with video games, that's also similar, where it does go on for quite a long time, usually with video games. Uh, Certainly one that's got a lot of music in it, which, you know, some of these games, like working on God of War was, I think, like three hours of music or something like that that we did for that. and that's sort of like a usually in phases to finish a video game because there's a lot of visual stuff that they're doing and working on and that sort of thing. Whereas with you know film, a lot of that's if it's live live action, it's already shot and everything like that. But um, that's kind of the schedule difference. But you know, aesthetically, I think it's a lot. A lot of it's pretty similar for me. You know, in terms of my approach, I think a lot of the sounds are, you know. A lot of stuff I work on is usually tends to be kind of modern sounding scores or more aggressive kinds of things and hybrid scores and stuff like that, which kind of finds its way on a lot of those different you know genres of media. You were mentioning earlier that you're wholly in the box. Um, what <laughs> do you have any special ways of approaching uh, a hybrid type thing? Because 
that can sometimes be a little challenging. Yeah. Well, one of the biggest things that I get interested in is hearing the synthesizers and things like that that are being worked on by the composer as far in advance as possible of, of the production of recording and mixing the score so that I can actually have time to sit with them and, and really make some sounds that I think help elevate them as much as possible. I think with a hybrid score, like um, I did this score for, for Morbius earlier this year that, that came out earlier this year, and that was a major, like very hybrid score. It was like a very synth Latin type score. And I, wanted, I got that stuff as early as possible, like to work on all of that sort of pre-production stuff that, that the composer was working on was something that I wanted to take as seriously as possible as far as like the sounds and the sonics and stuff like that. Um, so that's kind of what, I guess that's the approach I take. I like to use plugins. That's personally my thing. I don't use a lot of outboard gear to get sounds. So I, you know... I love distorting things. I love manipulating things. I do have some outboard gear I use, but it's primarily in the box for me. Um, I actually have some modular synth stuff that every once in a while I use, and I'll put something through it and get some weird, you know, unpredictable sounds and stuff like that. But for the most part, I like to work in the box and you know, primarily just work with plugins and that sort of thing, and just get sounds from the composer as soon as I possibly can, so that I can start developing ideas and, and sonics and stuff like that. And you have your own space, La Rockefeller, is that what it's called? <laughs> yeah, I, I, got, <laughs> I got a studio. It's, I do call it La Rockefeller Center. It's, uh, it's an homage. My, my dad always said, um, our name is La Rocca, not La Rockefeller, buddy. And uh, so that was, that was my way of kind of paying homage to my father. Um, but I, I had, you know, mixing without a studio was really tough because I had to sort of get in where I could or ask people if I can borrow their studio for a while and that sort of thing. And as I got busier, I was like, I have to get my own place. This is just getting completely insane. And I had gotten asked to mix Fortnite. And before I actually mixed it, was like, well, I could, I could rent a studio or find some place to go. But I thought maybe I should just make this my way of kind of, you know, diving in and saying, let's, let's see how this goes. Thinking, of course, it was going to be a three-month thing, and I'd be, you know, back into my home studio after that. But it, it ended up working out. That was in 2017 when I did Fortnite, and I've been I've been in my studio since. And I have and I have another room now too. So I have two rooms, two mix rooms that I that I have there, and I love it. It's great, distraction free from the kids. Did you think Fortnite was going to become as big as I didn't even know what Fortnite was, actually. I had no idea what it was. My assistant knew what it was, and he was like, dude, this is dope. He's like, Fortnite is the shit, man. I was like, cool. That's great. And like, it hadn't taken off even yet because I, I, like, after our version of it is when it like really like blew up and became this whole thing. So, when I just kept seeing all these things, people do, you know, doing their YouTube videos, playing it and all that stuff. And I was like, this is crazy. What happened in this video game? But no, I had no idea. And it was, you know, it was obviously very, very validating and exciting to see that happen because, you know, we were all just, I was just putting whatever I could into just making the music sound good. And then of course, when something blows up, you're like, oh, great. Finally, something happened. I want to give the audience a chance to ask you questions. 
Do you have um, a different approach to mixing or even recording when you're doing a video game versus a film? Sometimes with the video games, when one thing that's interesting and unique about them is that they uh, sometimes are in pieces and separated apart because you know the video game engine might have something loop or play a different beginning or play a different end or you know that sort of thing and and so the way we record the music and then of course mix it is sometimes in these sort of like broken apart pieces so that it can be put together later by the engine um so sometimes that plays into some of the technical decisions we make in terms of how we mix it and deliver it because sometimes we have to deliver certain things on their own stems because they have to be controlled and manipulated later by the video game engine. But with with films, we don't usually have that concern. It's something more of just like a, you know, this is it, this is the final thing, just make it sound glorious and fantastic. Um, and sonically too, it's kind of, there's, I find a lot of stuff is similar to these. I mean, like, you know, Bear's approach to video games, Bear McCreary's approach to video games, a lot of his stuff is very organic. And and even with his films and TV stuff, that's just his style. But then there's guys like Lauren Balfe who are very, you know, their hybrid approach and, you know, they like to use synths and stuff like that. Um, but I find that it's more sort of composer related than more than it is what the media is. It's sort of like their style. Um, I don't know. That's kind of the only thing really that I've, I've had a different, uh, technical approach to in terms of the differences between video games and movies. You kind of already answered part of my question earlier with talking about bringing the different mics or bringing the same mics to different studios, yeah. which I was going to ask, how did you get some consistency, but it can't be, it can't be that easy. Right. So were there other challenges presented by recording in different spaces for Lord of the Rings specifically? And is that something that you have to deal with often? Not often. I think Lord of the Rings was was pretty special in that regard because there was recording on such a large scale like a film, but it was episodic. So we took breaks in between every recording session, which, you know, is is was kind of unique to that project in that I also wasn't recording it because it was being recorded, you know, in London and, and Vienna. So if I was recording it, I would obviously be able to have a little more control over having the same mics because I have a lot of my own mics that I would use. But I just wanted to make sure that when we went to the second episode and did another recording session that it wasn't like a completely different sound that we had to like start completely over with. So I said to Nick Wallage, who was the recording engineer, I said, listen, let's just have this be as consistent as possible. Like what you put up for the first episode, this should be what we record all the episodes with so that when this gets released as a soundtrack and puts gets put together, that it doesn't sound completely crazy. And he, you know, he had, there was probably, I think there was three mics that he couldn't bring f between air and Abbey road, but everything else was the same. And, you know, he had a gazillion mics that he was using to record the orchestra with, but, and I, I said, well, just make the mics that you can use that both rooms have. Cause there's a lot of mics that, you know, are pretty common between a lot of studios, the, the bigger studios, um, you know, modern condensers and stuff like that. But if you're using these old tube mics <laughs> that they only have at air or that they only have at Abbey road or something like that, then we're like sort of starting over again, which I didn't want to have to do. I wanted to sort of roll the sound into the next episode and have each one kind of just get better and better as opposed to 
starting with nothing and then I'm having to work back up again. So we kept it pretty consistent. There, I think there was three mics that he had to change, but usually, however it needs to get done, it's, I think, a lot more beneficial to the show or to the film or whatever the project is that that stuff stays as consistent as possible. It's a discussion before a hand, you know, of how realistic that is. But if it can be done, I like it to be done. Yeah. You give like a quick overview of your Pro Tools template for film score, like as much as you can. Sure. Um, the template is more or less the same. Like I kind of usually roll it from project to project to project. It doesn't, uh, I don't really have like, one that parks here for TV and one that parks here for film and video games. Um, but it's generally about usually 20 STEM masters, 5.1 STEM masters that are uh, usually broken down into like four percussion stems. So like a low percussion, electronic percussion, high percussion, and some other, you know, mid percussion or whatever. Basses, synthesizers, pulsing synths, you know, guitar one and two, and then orchestra is usually four or five stems, like strings long, strings short, brass, uh, winds, and then a gazillion soloists, and then a you know, two choir stems. And that's I'll start there generally. And then if I need to add more, which hopefully I don't, uh, I will add more. And if I you know compare it down, I of course like to do that. But I have basically everything kind of already built. Like I put a lot of inserts on all my channels and I deactivate them all so that I could just quickly turn them on and just see what something sounds like with a certain plugin on. And I have all of my reverbs already preset. So all my sends are there. All of the sounds that I basically want are all there. And a lot of my bus EQ, bus compression, bus limiting and stuff is like, all kind of carried over into the next project. So like, you know, whatever I was done doing on God of War goes into Lord of the Rings and that goes on to the next one and the next one. So I, I just kind of keep it in sort of like a linear thing. Um, so all that stuff's just sort of on there. It's been building for however many years I've had my template. So it's just a bunch of crap. <laughs> you know, I just, I just know where it all is and I just kind of like turn it on, see what sounds good. And then if it doesn't, I turn it back off. It's like, for me, I, I like to just get to a fantastic sound as fast as I possibly can and don't like to fuddle middle whatever with like too many things that I look at and go, what is that plugin? Well, let's try something new. Like, I don't like to do that. I like to just turn something on. If it doesn't sound better, then I don't use it and just like get to sort of a good concept of how this is going to work as fast as possible and not solo a kick drum for 20 hours. When you got this project, were you thinking about, or did you get direction to try to match the quality, the sound quality of those original scores? Or did you kind of break it down in your mind and set yourself up for that? Or yes, definitely. Um, well, Bear was, yeah, Bear was taking that pretty seriously. Bear McCreary was the composer, and he was, you know, we we sort of inundated ourselves with the whole. Thing, you know, and, and, uh, you know, Howard Shore's music and all that stuff. And, you know, we knew that it, it was, of course, going to be something different and was going to, you know, stand apart from that in, in some respects. But that obviously we wanted to pay as much homage and respect to that as we could. I mean, it's recorded in the same place, you know, and there's a good starting point, you know. 
And um, yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're both sort of huge fans of all those Sonics from those films and stuff. So it was kind of hard not to, you know, to just completely deny it in any way that we just sort of like embraced it. And we're like, you know, how can we do our absolute best and our best version of what, you know, we've been given this opportunity to do this. Let's try and kill it the best we can. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say it's for me sonically as, as good as what, you know, Peter Cobbin did on, on the other ones on the films, but you know, we, I just did whatever I could. I was just absolutely trying to make it the best sounding thing I've ever done. <laughs> I thought the, uh, the music sounds uh, gorgeous on the, this rings of power, Jason. And I was wondering, you know, with so bear does a mock up and it sounds a certain way and the showrunners and producers and everyone involved gets probably approves that and signs off. And then you re-record everything with live orchestra and fiddles and flutes and all sorts of hurdy-gurdy and nickel harpa. How do you decide what, uh, like what, how close do you try to match the mock-up that everyone's approved and how is that decision process made between what he had in the mock-up and now what's been delivered to you that you're going to make into your mix? That is definitely the trick, especially with, with Bear McCreary because he has He's, he spends a lot of time mixing his own his own mock-ups and his own demos, so they're really detailed. And you know, there can't be much sway from the general idea of like how he's using reverb, what you know reverbs he might even be using, uh, and how uh, how the orchestra sounds in terms of depth. Like, is it mostly room mics? Is it mostly close mics? And all he details a lot of that stuff in his mock-ups. And so I take that pretty seriously when I'm redoing it all with all the live stuff. Because also the the showrunners and the producers, they do want it to sound a lot like the mock-up, yet only better. So it is that that fine line trick of like, how do we... And there's moments where I know I can get into something and just go, I'm just... I'm just going fuck you style on this mix and I'm just going to go for it and I'm just going to get massive with it, you know, cause the demo sounds great, but this, now that we have all this here, we're going to, just going to go crazy. So there's moments like that where I know I have that. That's just my job. That's what I'm going to do is I'm going to just like take this thing to the, you know, the next volume level and make it go to 11. But there's a lot of respect to what he's done and all the work that he's put into it. So that every instrument that gets replaced sounds like basically what it's doing only now it sounds very obviously real and you know and it sort of sounds easy to say it but that is the trick of it is like you know how the inflections of the the flute solo and stuff like that and how it's slightly different and there was even times when we had gone back to using certain demo elements like even for like a solo instrument or something like that because it swayed too far from what the live player did so there can be that demo-itis, what they call it or whatever, you know, where it's like somebody really does love what the demo was doing. Yeah, and they don't want it changed. I mean, that's like with doing records too, with like a vocalist does a demo scratch vocal and they're like, they don't want it changed. They just want to keep it because it's just like they're super attached to it. And so sometimes what is the quote-unquote demo of a solo instrument becomes the the final and stays that way. But a lot of the time the idea was he wanted specifically to have everything get fully replaced. Like that was kind of like a, an initial discussion we had. It was like, take this and don't even turn any of my mock-up tracks on. Like this should just be completely new and all these recordings are going to sound fabulous and it's going to be great. So in general, that's a, you know, 
it's, it's a pain in the ass to do, but <laughs> but you know that's it, it does sound great. It pays off at the end, you know, because uh, the live players just bring so much to it. It's incredible. Thanks, everyone. I think we have to wrap it up because we have another panel. Jason, thank cool. you so much. Yeah, thanks for having for me, guys. Sharing so much yeah. of your experience with of us.